This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here at Beer Sessions Radio. We're going to introduce our guests, and we're going to be talking about fermentation um, with uh, Gabe. Hey. Uh, just say your name and your who you are for a minute. Uh, how much would you like to know about me? My name is Gabe, <laughs> uh, Gabe Toth. I manage a distillery in northern Colorado. I am a former brewer, wrote a book called The Fermentation Kitchen for the Brewers Association. And that's why, that's why we're here today. And Brandon? Uh, my name is Brandon Buza, and uh, I go by the Instagram handle, The Fermented Life. And it started uh, with natural wines a long time ago, decades ago, and uh, just evolved into a lot of other exotic fruits and um, ciders. and um, getting into distilled spirits, breads. So all things kind of related to <laughs> oh, yeast yeah. and bacteria and all the fun stuff. So big picture, this is a, a new book from the Brewers Association, The Fermentation Kitchen. And uh, it got sent to me a few weeks ago. I'm really liking it. But I, I want to just get your backstory, Gabe. Why did you write a fermentation book? You're, you're a distiller. Um, and what was the process of, of your own personal journey? Because I know you started as a home brewer. That was your first fermenting. But how did it go from that to an entire – it's actually really a cookbook about fermented foods. Yeah. Well, uh, some 15 – little over, yeah, 15, 16 years ago, I graduated college. I was in southern Colorado. Had a, you know, had learned to, uh, to appreciate good beer, craft beer. And you know, living in Colorado as it as I was, and I got my first job out of college in the mountains of northern New Mexico, and at the time there was a single brewery, and you know, in the couple hundred miles from Santa Fe up well into Colorado, uh, probably probably Salida, and so. I, you know, I was living in the mountains. Not, you know, not much to do in the off season when, uh, when the ski air, when the ski lift wasn't running. So I started learning to homebrew, and that just sort of snowballed into, well, I, I love pickles. I'll, I'll learn how to make pickles, and well, cheese is awesome. Uh, why not? Why not learn how to make cheese and. And all of these things just sort of piled up charcuterie and then bread and, um, you know, it all just sort of snowballed into a, into a collection of hobbies. Well, the, I'll tell you, the, the book's really great. I mean, it starts with, with bread and, and it goes up to the end to different types of fermented sausages. Let's talk about what fermentation is because, you know, the, I mean, Let's start with Brandon. Brandon, I think we had talked about this once not too long ago, and you made sure of saying that that bread was part of this life of fermentation. Yep. Yep. I think, well, I mean, for me, it's uh, um, probably a little bit like gay, but just, you know, you kind of pick up one thing and then you pick up something else, all these little hobbies and it's sort of the, always the desire to, my desire to do everything. It's like, Hey, I, you know, I doesn't, and it doesn't matter where you live. Right. So I live in San Francisco and Hey, I'm going to make pizza and I want to make everything. I'm going to grow my own grain. I'm going to mill the grain. Like, you know, people <laughs> like you can't do those things. Right. Well, the more you tell me I can't do something, no matter how ridiculous it is, I'm going to figure it out. And, and I have done that. I, I, I like to say with the gentleman who I did this with, 
you know, we were probably the first people to grow grain and make bread from it uh, in a hundred years in San Francisco, but we did that and, uh, you know, made our own cheese and uh, I um, harvested a pig and, and did all the, it just, it just, you know, can you do it? It's just the challenge of it and learning that, learning that process, that adventure, the curiosity. Um, and obviously along the way, you meet a lot of other really interesting people who have these, you know, kind of passions and curiosities and it just feeds on itself. But I think for me, um, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, people were like, Oh, what are you going to focus on? You know, in your hobbies, cause you're making bread at a high level and you're making cider and wine. It's like, you know, you got to pick one. And I always just kind of thought that doesn't make any sense. I don't need to pick one. I'm going to do all of them. And I mean, clearly to, to be an expert expert, right. It is difficult to spread yourself across those things, but I've stayed in them. And I think making product at a pretty high level, um, I mean, I just won a best in class gold at Glint Cap for a cider. And so I'm, I know I'm on the right path um, and the product that I'm making. And, and you start to realize that there's way more in common, right? And I think even when I started into the distilling front and folk had a focus on heritage grains a number of years ago, there were a, but definitely a bunch of people that are kind of like, ah, it doesn't matter. And kind of like sort of thinking, kind of looking down on that. And now all of a sudden that's all the rage. I mean, everybody's pushing into that. and. Um, and so they're, they're, they're just, I think they're, all these things are way more connected um, than they're disconnected. And, and I just, I enjoy that. Right. And I think for me, you started to get into these things. It's like, okay, I'm with cider people they don't, who are not doing distilling. And, um, and I, I learn things that kind of are cross pollinate. Right. And I help that helps me in one area. Like, so maybe I'll learn something for distilling that helps me with cider or bread. Um, and so it's that discovery, right. It's that, continuing for me to learn, to be better, to be better educated, but also meeting other people that are curious and are teaching me and helping me in my journey. It's just this, you know, era time of, of just discovery and just getting to be more rounded. I mean, I just, I just, I love every part of it, right. From the people, from the conversation we're having today to, you know, the adventure of learning how these things work or rediscovering things that we knew a hundred years ago and have kind of lost our way on and forgotten. Oh yeah. Um, no. And that's what uh, Gabe, touches on that in the book Gabe let's go back to the beginning to the forward so Kirsten Shockey I know her I interviewed her once about her her vinegar book um how did you meet her and and how did you get her to write the forward for your book (laughs) uh that's a great question for my publisher um (laughs) you know she we actually lucked out a little bit she has family. Uh, I live in Longmont, kind of north, uh, a little northwest of Denver, sort of right in this Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins triangle. And she has family in Lo- in Longmont also. So we were able to, to connect and sit down and chat a couple of times um, prior to the, the publication of the book. Uh, I, I couldn't really tell you how we got in touch with her originally, but she happened to be visiting Longmont when we were uh, when we were casting about for a uh, yeah. For well, a she, to author. me, she, she's a big deal in fer- in fermentation um, for sure, and that's a testament to your book that you've got Kirsten Shockey. Uh, as uh, yeah, the, I was. Forward. Uh, I was really excited to get her on board. I. Um, I don't know if you've read all the way through to the bibliography, but I've got uh, got a couple of her her books in there, and I I was so disappointed. I really wish her uh, vinegar book had come out just a little bit earlier because I I didn't have a lot of good content to to tap into there that was already out. Yeah, well, um, homebrewed vinegar is her thing. Hey, let's go to the yeah. bread. So you, 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 the book starts with bread. Um, what are, what are some of the, the key things that you're recommending that people do when they're starting to make bread? Uh, for me, one of the biggest things is to, is is to use more water than is traditional and to, you know, just abuse your dough less, um, allow the extra hydration and, a nice long hydration rest and, you know, a couple of folds, but not necessarily a heavy kneading of the dough. Just, you know, allowing the, 
some folds to create a little structure and the the action of your fermentation to really create your gluten structure uh, when you're when you're learning to make bread. You know, I uh, I love sandwiches. I love love sandwiches. One of my favorite foods in the world, or I guess types of food. It's not a specific food, but for years I would go on road trips and you know, I'd pack all this homemade stuff and I would make some, some baguettes and they were always disappointing. They were always heavy. They weren't bad, but they were denser than I wanted and they were heavier than I wanted. And I started uh, just a couple of years ago, started playing with, you know, use more water, do less kneading and do, you know, just a, a few folds as I'm, you know, as, as, as I'm fermenting my dough and it, you know, it was like a thunderbolt. The first time I pulled out a batch from the oven, you know, I, I could feel it. I could feel the difference in the dough when it went into the oven. But when I pulled my baguette pan out of the oven and I picked up one of the loaves and it was just, it was like a balloon. It was just lighter than air. It's like, Oh my God, that's it. <laughs> I'll it just say rough. one thing. One reason we we're recording the show this week, it's Thanksgiving week, is that I, I thought I'd rather talk about this for Thanksgiving than turkey and <laughs> and gravy. But and, and and Brandon, so with with you with bread, um, you know, what what would you tell us about making bread for the first time? And how important is the the sourdough culture for you? Uh, this is, this is a 10 hour show, right? Uh, it's, <laughs> kind of. it's, it's complicated. Uh, I mean, that's the easiest way to, to, to answer it. Uh, I think it really depends on who the person is, right? I kind of feel them out and d determine how, you know, how, you know, how focused they are. You know, they're, everybody has a different level, right? I mean, my, my level is, is much different on, on what I'm willing to go through, um, and I work with a lot of heritage grains. I have two different mills, you know, depending on what I'm doing, I mill things differently. Um, and so I'm expecting that most people are not going to be, you know, kind of to that level. And so I try to keep it simple for them. Right. So pick an inexpensive, high, you know, high protein flour, something that's going to be easy to work with, something that's going to be very forgiving. Um, and actually I would probably tend to give the opposite advice. I would, you know, kind of have people under hydrate. I think hydration um, for me is a dangerous thing. I mean, I do most of my stuff by hand. I mean, certainly I have recipes, but everything's by feel and grain, you know, it's a difference, right? I have friends in Vancouver, right? And the grains are getting the Canadian flour is going to be different, right? It's going to function differently than if you're in Europe or if you're here. And so a lot, a lot of that is kind of how I would, you know, give me some basics about where you're at and how you're, you know, what flour you have access to, what the protein looks like and, and just go with a simple, you know, kind of a really simple, straightforward recipe. And, uh, the starter, you know, there's a lot of, I think, unfortunately, that's how I really got deep into bread a long time ago is there's just so much misinformation online. And I think people really tend to not fully understand how sour, you know, how like a native culture works. And, um, you know, a lot of, I think to keep it simple, people make it very regimented and here you got to follow these, you know, kind of but I've lived with my starter. I've traveled all over the world with it. It's been, you know, I put it through all sorts of kind of trials and, you know, it's a living thing. It's very durable. Uh, there are certain limits you can't press it past. And so I think I don't emphasize the starter as much. I mean, keeping it healthy and happy is one thing, but I don't, I'm not what, not much one to subscribe that there's a, a, a huge difference. Uh, and I have yet for anybody to really prove that, Hey, my starter and, London is different than the starter that's, you know, on my grain in, in California. And even if it was, uh, as soon as you feed it, whatever that local grain is, right, it's going to change. And unless you're going to a lab, you don't know what it is. Um, you know, it's going to, it's going to change frequently. So that, that's a long answer. I guess what I'm, yeah. what I'm trying to say is it kind of depends on who it is. Well, that's so, why I, I, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of got a, a long day on Thursday and Friday for Thanksgiving, and I'm probably going to be baking a lot. So this is good yeah. for me. I remember yeah. also here in New York, she wolf, Bakery Austin, the baker who does a great job at a couple home baker events. You know, we've had home brewer events, and now yep. some of the regional grains groups have been doing home bakers. Um, yep. they, they they would give out 
little package of uh, their wet starter, um, yep. which which is pretty great. Gabe, what I like about the book on this note also is it's it's very introductory, but in a very sophisticated way, because even with the bread, you you lay out some basics, but you say you're not trying to come up with this penultimate recipe. Rather, kind of what Brandon said, you're trying to give people the the basic understanding, right? Yeah, a lot of what I wanted to do with this was, you know, kind of explain to people, not just with bread, but all these different fermentations, you know, here are the levers that you can pull. Here's, you know, here, here are the impacts when you adjust these variables, and maybe you like a more sour pickle than I do, or a, you know, or you have different ingredients than I do. And you're, you know, you're trying to adapt those, you know, everybody, I think everybody who's out there making fermented foods has sort of this, uh, I mean, obviously you have some level of creative drive and I think we, we tend to have this kind of vision or, maybe just a, a general concept of you know what what is my what is my ultimate loaf of bread and you know it's going to be different than somebody else's ultimate loaf of bread or their ultimate pickle or sausage or or whatever so i i wanted to uh i i wanted to to dive enough into the uh into those details into those kind of variables that you can play with to say, you know, here are the things that you can, you can adjust, go forth and, and make your perfect loaf or your, your perfect pickle or whatever it is. No, that's great. You know, when, and also when reading this book, cause you cover so many things, again, I said, you know, bread to, to salamis and things. Um, what are some foods that people don't think of as, uh fermented so you know you've got cheese pickles you know bread beer of course and cider and things yeah but what, there's other common foods that that have a fermentation pro you know you you want me to tell you the ones i'm thinking yeah. of or do you want me to oh tell? sure <laughs> <laughs> i mean a lot of it is stuff that that didn't make it into this book and you know there's there's the possibility out there that we come back and do a more advanced version. If, you know, if everybody loves this book and, you know, blows the doors off. Uh, but I think things like hard cheeses, people don't generally think of as, as a fermented food, uh, you know, cheddar cheese or Parmesan. People don't always think of that as, you know, as a fermentation um, soy sauce. I think soy sauce is a big one that's overlooked and sort of the uh the mindset that you know the sort of the the general discussion of fermentation um a lot of these koji driven foods you know i thought you just sauce, bought soy miso. sauce in the supermarket what's that <laughs> i thought you just bought soy sauce in the supermarket <laughs> yeah it just comes in like it just naturally comes in those little packets just pick it off the tree <laughs> Pete, and, and that's funny, going back to other books, Pete, Pete Brown, one of his books, he's written so many a couple years ago about the different ingredients of beer. He, he said that for many years, most people just thought beer was was made of chemicals. Uh, didn't <laughs> even know the ingredients. And I think yeah. we, when you mentioned soy sauce, my first thought is, yeah, doesn't that just come in the supermarket? I mean, some of them, some of them are just mixtures of, you know, the, these processed ingredients, but really good soy sauces are, are are fermented, just like miso. They're they're just sort of a thinner version. Um, I think vinegar is another one that people sort of overlook in the in the discussion of fermentation. You know, maybe less so now that that Kirsten's book is out. But I think when you talk about fermentation, people kind of you know when you talk about vinegar. People go, oh, well, you know, white white vinegar. You know, it's that, it's that pure acid. You know, pure acidic stuff. 
but then you, you, you know, you go deeper into it and, you, and you're like, oh, well, what about beer vinegar or, you know, homemade wine vinegar? Uh, I think that one's maybe a little bit more in the, in the conversation, but I, I think it's still very overlooked. That's very um, interesting. You also mentioned uh, things that we drink. So I'll say it, cocoa beans, cacao beans and coffee. I, I never think of those as from. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of knew that in the back of my head, but when I was reading it, I went, yeah, you know, you never really, you never really think about that. And Harold McGee in his book uh, on food and cooking talks about this the the vast number of of transformations uh, that these that these beans of both types undergo some of it's enzymatic some of it is microbial but you you're taking the, in a lot of cases un unpalatable uh un undesirably flavored compounds and converting them into something just remarkable and delicious. Uh, yeah, that's one that I, it, even when you ask the question, that's not the, you know, that's not a top of head, you know, top of my mind uh, response. Oh yeah. Cacao and, and coffee. Oh yeah. And um, Brandon, so for, for you, you must have a lot to say because I know you do. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> about which for like just what? How do you mean? Just keep the conversation going. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think uh, when I make pizza, half the time I'm using fermented uh, tomato sauces, and um, you know people are normally surprised by that and that process. You know, especially um, you know when you when you go through that the first time, and you may have a little uh, film yeast or something. You know, this white stuff growing on your vegetable on your counter. Um, you know, people think that's odd. And, you know, I kind of re reminded how far I've come, you know, and things generally you see are like, Oh, I'm not going to put that in my mouth. And now it's, you know, you're, you're kind of like, you know, not phased by anything that would probably will eventually bite me in the ass, but you know, from strange apples or uh, exotic fruits, um, you know, fermented, fermented things that look like they, maybe they've gone awry. Um, I think kind of tend to tend to trust the process more. Um, you know, knowing that you've put some simple measures in place, right. Adding a little bit of salt to, um, you know, kind of kill off some bacteria or not letting things go too far. Yeah. Um, but just that process, right. It's the, it's really the conversation that keeps things kind of interesting. And, and, um, again, I, you know, I'm thankful for the community that's, you know, whether that's the baking community, whether that's the farming community for grains and, um, you know, produce and apples and things like that to the, um, distilling master distillers, folks that are just willing to share, you know, their experiences and continue to kind of motivate me and then turning around and getting to share that with people. And um, I just like that engagement. So not everybody wants to go that deep. Not everybody cares about that sort of stuff, but um, there are enough of us out there that, you know, well, I, I was just thinking if, if you want to go deep, like meant only mentioning Thanksgiving, makes me think how excited I am for leftovers and I'll probably just be saving most of it for some kind of a chili. But when I think about my sandwich, okay, I'll have turkey. But I think, Gabe, I bet you would make – you could make everything to go with that sandwich. So what, what, would, what would you make – what would you be serving with your turkey sandwich? Tell me the bread, condiments, whatever else you're going to make. Let's, let's get that out there now so people can, <laughs> can salivate we this weekend. Are we are we talking specifically Thanksgiving leftover yeah. sandwich? Well, let's assume the only leftover you have is is turkey and everything else you already made or you're planning to make like your bread or something. So one of my you know one of my go to sandwiches, um, I, I'm a I'm a huge sucker for an Italian sandwich of any kind, but one of my go to sandwiches because you, you know you can't always shovel mounds of salted pork in your face all day uh is smoked turkey which is what i make for thanksgiving um you know some you're, sliced, you're already one step ahead look at that some, <laughs> some like sliced uh smoked turkey breast 
uh, fennel, salami, and brie. And then something, you know, a little acidic, might be mustard or spicy mustard or um, maybe some homemade pickles, uh, pickles and mustard, pickles and mustard and hot sauce, uh, giardinera, Italian, uh, Chicago-style giardinera, one of my one of my favorite pickled things. Um, that's, uh, that sounds know, pretty if, damn good. If, what kind if of I ever, if, Oh, a, a baguette for sure. If, if we ever opened a sandwich shop, that would be, you know, <laughs> that would be the Gabe special. It would be smoked I, turkey, fennel, salami, and brie. I think you're going to see that on every brewery's menu soon. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> if they read your some. book. Well then, okay. So Jardinera, let's talk about that one. Yeah. So, we think about pickled vegetables and what is jardinera? I mean, I know it's got different vegetables. You might have, to me, it's the kitchen sink, but yeah. Why is that? What makes it fermented? Like what do the flavors do as opposed to just making like a quick refrigerated marinated vegetable? So with jardinera, um, you know, you've got your baseline jardinera, the Italian style, which is kind of the kitchen sink, as you're talking about it. Mine is normally cauliflower, red peppers, uh, onion, carrot. Yeah. Uh, when I say red pepper, red bell pepper, whatever other kind of peppers might be growing in the garden. Um, not traditionally herbs, but I might throw some in if, you know, if my time is going crazy or something. Um, yeah, just chopped up into bite-sized pieces, bigger or smaller as you like, and and those those you know veg those mixed vegetable ferments really as they as they sit together over time give you a just a spectacular uh, sort of flavor profile that you don't get from a you know a single vegetable a you know a cucumber with dill or you know green beans and garlic and well, maybe dill. Uh, but then taking that a step further, that giardinera, you've got your Chicago style giardinera, which is mostly peppers and it's, for, it's, it's pickled. But after it's, uh, after it's finished pickling, in my case, fermenting, um, you drain it and and let as much of the brine come off as possible, and then you pack it in oil. And I don't know if you've ever had this stuff, but it's uh, you know it it it's it's fatty, it's salty, it's uh, vinegary because the you know the vegetables are still you know they're still acidified. They're they're just packed in oil. Um, it might be spicy. It's hitting so many different notes. So, so that's what you're talking about, the traditions of food. That's something that makes sense because it's fermented and then it's packed in oil. So that kind of predates refrigeration, right? Yeah. And that oil, you know, that, that oil adds a, a richness to your, to your, ferment, your fermented pickle, your, your fermented vegetables. And it doesn't have to be lots of peppers. I've done it with, you know, with a, uh, when I had a lot of cabbage in the garden, um, I made a very cabbage and peppery uh, giardinera. Um, but that 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 oil adds just this extra layer of fat of of richness. But it's definitely something that, uh, as you said, predates from uh, predates refrigeration. It's a, you know. It's no, a sterile it, medium. It sounds great. And hold on. Uh, let's just mention our beers before we take a short break. I'm drinking Alaskan Brewing Company, their smoked porter, um, which you, you give the thumbs up to, right, Gabe? You know, that beer was the inspiration for my very first commercially made beer. Um, yeah, limited 2021 was... edition. A lot of writers got these bottles, and I think that <laughs> it's worth it. And then what are you drinking? You're drinking an Odell's? Yeah, I'm drinking a Mountain Standard IPA from Odell. And you're you're right up there. You're like Fort Collins, right? Colorado. 
Yeah, my uh, the the distillery that I manage is about a half hour from Fort Collins, so we, you know, we like to support Odell. We like to support, um, you know, New Belgium is right there, down in in Longmont. We've got some some big breweries there too. We've got Left Hand and uh, and Oscar Blues. Um, we've got a lot of good beer around. No, it's good good beer country there. But it's a good place. Listen, to we're be. we're gonna take a short break. We'll be right back. On Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Check us out and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. If you're listening before or on November 30th, don't forget it's Giving Tuesday, and you can give to us at heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking about the Fermentation Kitchen uh, by Gabe Toth, and we've got Brandon Buzza of The Fermented Life. So this is kind of cool. We've been talking about bread and fermentations. And we just mentioned a few beers. Um, so, Gabe, you mentioned uh, cooking, since I have the smoke porter, you mentioned cooking with beer um, in ferment, fermenting. So how can you add like a beer like a porter to a loaf of bread? Um, you know, porter is perfect for, for, adding, to, uh, for adding to bread. I, I don't know. Uh, necessarily the, the upper limit. I've never gone as far as substituting, you know, a hundred percent of the, the water that I use in my bread with beer. Um, I know that at a certain point, the acidity will start to affect the dough, but when you talk about, you know, you need maybe a, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the recipes in the book, I think call for about 750 milliliters of water. Uh, so what's a what's a what's a, a beer? I'm looking at the can my can here. Um, well, crap. That's that's an that's an ounces. That's twelve ounces. But I think that's roughly half, uh, half or maybe a little less of the the water that that you need in the in the bread. And it, you know, a straight one one for one swap there has been fine with me. Um, generally though, Porter is awesome for, for doing that. Stouts are great. Lighter beers tend to get, you know, tend to get a little lost. I was really optimistic about making a, a a bread that, uh, a nice big round loaf that was kind of Saison, uh, had a nice Saison aroma to it. It did not, um, tried using some. You know, some sour beers, they added, a, you know, a little hint of tartness maybe, but it wasn't, uh, it was disappointing. Um, what about the, so the pour, does it add sweetness? What does it add? Oh, it'll add, yeah, it'll add some sweetness. It'll add some, some richness, um, some smoke if, you, if you're going to use uh, one of those fine Alaskan porters. Um, yeah, it'll give you... Just sort of a, a fuller, rounder flavor profile with the with the added sugars uh, from the beer. You, you've also got those beer flavors. You've got chocolate and roast and smoke and all that stuff. You know, accentuating your your profile. So you could use a chocolate porter beer and 
make a pretty interesting loaf, right? Yeah, you bet. Oh, wow. Hey, back to Brandon. So, Brandon, um, it turns out you're a judge for the Good Food Awards. Um, yeah, technically, and- I'm actually a co-chair, so I, I, um, I judge for other cider competitions, um, but I actually run um, run the co- the competition. So I'm not judging anything, but I, you know, we kind of walk through how we're scoring and, you know, we'll um, weigh in if there are questions or issues. You know, maybe it's not to category or, you know, do you to detect a fault? Um, and uh, so anyway, yeah, so it's a little bit different role, but um, yeah, I, I'm deeply involved with uh, good food. And uh, in fact, just met with um, uh, the new uh, Max Kerwin, who's taking kind of the, the reins this coming year. And uh, I'm excited about uh, another year of, with, of good food, which uh, entitles me to not only being involved on the cider front, but um, getting tied into a lot of other categories and getting to learn from a lot of other experts and, you know, olive oil and coffee, fish, cheese, um, you know, because they'll bring me and allow me to kind of sit in and judge some of these categories from time to time. Um, yeah. And it's just a you're, fantastic you're organization. In the expert category. Um, how about this? So do you have a question for Gabe? Because it's like he's, he's all knowing in terms of all the different <laughs> types of fermentations. Is there, is there one, one type of food you'd, you'd be curious about uh, knowing, like a basic recipe or something? Well, uh, I will say that uh, I have uh, tackled, um, yeah, it's obviously uh, something that's quite simple, um, but cabbage. And, uh, and I know that there are very small, or at least in, in tasting other folks, sauerkraut, um, tasting folks with just, just the slightest of differences in how they go about that process. And, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have, let me put it this way. I don't have a recipe that I've really kind of fallen in love with. I mean, I love, I put sauerkraut on everything, like from breakfast to lunch to dinner. And, um, and, and I guess I just don't make it routinely enough to have something I'm really, really a fan of, but, but I am curious if they're, you know, he's got a, something that he's just in love with a, you know, specific process or recipe that, Wait, um, actually, my my Thanksgiving sandwich it might just be my leftover turkey with. I'm gonna buy some sauerkraut <laughs> and see a different cheese. So, Gabe, you know, I don't have a a single go to method for sauerkraut. It kind of depends, or for cabbage in general, you know, for sauerkraut, I might shred it salt it, pack it in a crock. Um, I've had it dry out on me like that. Uh, I have, I have done uh, a, a brine in a, like a more closed system in a jar with a weight, uh, which has worked, has worked fine. Um, sauerkraut, sauerkraut to me is, you know, I, I like sauerkraut. I have nothing against sauerkraut. Um, I keep kimchi in my fridge though. Whenever we, when we run out of kimchi, I make more. When we run out of sauerkraut, I'll make more eventually. Um, so I don't necessarily have a, just a, a a hard and fast, here's how I make sauerkraut. But I've found that, you know, just salting and pressing, in a in a closed jar or brining both work fine um i like to add a little something it might be mustard seed or dill seed or caraway um i've heard of uh shredding a uh a daikon radish in with with the cabbage to give it a little sweetness you know it sweetens up your sauerkraut a little even after the fermentation. Um, actually, we did that a couple of years ago at the, the New Mexico Fermentation Festival, and it was, uh, it was delightful. So. Yeah, I think for me, <laughs> for me, sometimes the, the, you know, it's the, you know, it's kind of the, it's the uh, trade-off between having bread around all the time and, and not wanting to go through all the effort. So, you know, sauerkraut versus um, kimchi, you know, something that's a staple that's pretty easy to put together, right? So, you know, what I prefer to be making more exotic loaves most of the time, extended fermentations, um, soakers, kind of all that stuff. I mean, that that's the preferred route, but sometimes you're like, uh, you know, I really just want to have bread in the house. 
that I made for breakfast this week. And, you know, I've only got whatever, six hours to do it. Right. So I'm, you know, working on uh, higher hydration, right. More temperatures. Maybe I'm working with fresh milled grains, everything to speed up enzymatic activity, speed up my process. Um, so I guess I think of sauerkraut a little bit too, kind of like as a staple, what's uh, you know, something that's not, <laughs> not as involved as kimchi and, you know, is there something that, you know, it's, yeah, yeah kind of right. basic, but you know, something uh -huh. that you uh, go to and, and, uh, you know, maybe some ingredient that people don't think about that makes a difference. Cause, um, I've made it, it's fine, but I've had other people's, it seemed like the recipes are similar and it just, I don't know, to me, it tastes a lot better. So. What, uh, what was different about it? I would ask. Is well, it it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because right now I, you know, I have not made it for a while. Um, but I was with some friends that we were, I was trading some sort of exotic wines with them, unusual fruits. Um, and they were trading me, um, a bunch of sauerkrauts that they had made. And, and I just remember it being, I don't know, a little bit brighter, um, just a little more flavorful and you know why why that is i don't you know without sitting down and tasting it side by side to mine i i couldn't tell you the distinct notes but i i just you know you're caught sometimes right and even in the smallest smallest little differences you're like i don't know what it is but you know something yeah. that i'm dra drawn to and and you know i want to put this in everything versus mine it's kind of like yeah it's good but you know i don't really need to put it on my sandwich it's like you know just uh breakfast and eggs is fine or something i, I don't know it's subtle yeah I, and it might be the sort of thing, like I mentioned, I, uh, I'll add a little something in my, in my sauerkraut when I'm mixing it up, it might be some kind of seeds. Um, I, I would definitely try the, uh, the daikon, uh, shredding some daikon or some carrot. And, and what are your feeling on using uh, peppers, any particular spicy peppers that are better than others? It probably maybe doesn't matter. Do you do anything special? When I made a, uh, when I had cabbage just exploding in my garden, I went out and bought some, uh, some serrano peppers and used those and some carrot and, uh, you know, some regular stuff, garlic and onion. And that's what I, that's what I made my, uh, my Giardinero with the, the very first time, um, so I like serrano peppers. They're they're small enough, uh, small enough to easily go into a relish, sort of not necessarily a relish, but more of a condiment size. Um, green chilies to me, you know, I lived in New Mexico, even in, in southern Colorado and New Mexico for uh, for fifteen years between the two of them, and. I actually have a little jar of fermented green chilies in in the fridge right now. The last of the the last of the chilies that I got at the farmers market this year. Just uh, just kind of keep them, you know, keep them bright and keep them a little fresher than what I'm going to get out of the out of the freezer section at the grocery store. When that, and actually that, that sort of uh, reminds me of um, – it, it does remind me of a, 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 another question, something I was introduced to a couple years ago in Colorado um, on the western slope, western side of the state, um, was the black garlic. And uh, obviously another fermented item, which um, yeah. for people who haven't had before is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, curious if you're adding that to things. Uh, you know, whether you could add that easily because you probably could to sauerkraut, which I just never really thought about. And then uh, do you make that? I mean, I, that, it's a process that I'm always threatening to do and I, I have not done. So <laughs> I, I have no experience in making black garlic, but, uh, but it's so good. I, I need to. Yeah. It's uh it's on my very short list of next. Well, it's really a very long list, but it's on, <laughs> it's, it's near the top of my very long list of next projects i'm uh, i'm wrapping up my my master's studies right now and i'm really looking forward to next year you know black garlic is one of those you know we have a rice cooker and and that's that's perfect for making black garlic from from what i've read from what i understand you know you want it hovering just a little over 100 degrees for you know weeks mm -hmm. for several weeks um, so I, I've used it, I've never made it, but it's, uh, 
it's on my radar for sure. Um, <laughs> in terms of adding it to things, you know, it's, it's great with some mayo, um, you know, puree it, pulverize it into some mayo and, you know, put it on a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is, this is, this isn't the fermentation. This is uh, the sandwich show. It's, it's the sandwich episode. <laughs> now let's go get back to the book. We got, um, okay. Here's some great quotes. Sander Katz. And what, what I love about the show is that everyone who's listening can look up all the stuff as they're listening. So, um, Sandra Katz, the quote you give is, between fresh and rotten, you know, what, what are the boundaries, you know, when, when you're learning to ferment new things, you know, and tell us about the role of microbes and, and how these microbes are different than from yeast that you're, you're, you're brewing in, in a commercial brewery. Sure. Well, the, the boundary is really where, well, the, the boundary is, sort of where you're comfortable combined with what may or may not make you sick. And even that, that health factor can be, can be very cultural. You know, there are, there are fermented foods out there that uh, you may have grown up that if you live somewhere, you may have grown up with them and you may be acclimated to them, or you may have, even evolved, co-evolved with these fermented foods and your body is, uh, you know, is your, in particular, your microbiome sort of evolved in the presence of these foods and you're, you know, you're perfectly happy and healthy. So like maybe my, my people grew up eating yogurt, but don't drink Cosmo when they're adults, something like that. Sure. Um, as far as flavor, there's also, that's a huge factor. You know, I mentioned in the book, you might, you know, you might have a, uh, a huge aversion to kimchi. My, my father grew up, uh, not grew up, but worked uh, when we lived in New Jersey, worked in, in a setting where he associated kimchi with having to clean out these apartments and, you know, the, uh, the aroma of it had just soaked in and you know the first time i brought it home he just went not again never again you're not doing this you know you're never bringing kimchi back in here back into our house but then if you go to to korea they might look at a really nice blue cheese that you're super excited about and go uh-uh that's gross we're not touching that um fermented uh Icelandic fermented shark, you know, packed with ammonia. Not really not really anybody's first idea of, hey, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna dive into fermented foods and I'm gonna start by making fermented shark. That's what they serve um, with a shot of alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just try and keep it down. Well, how about this? The, the, the pitfalls and, and the fears of ferment, fermentation. Like there's that b, the B word botulism. But I know, for example, that garlic can be very difficult to handle when you're trying to keep it. Like I, I used to make when I was a kid, I just put flavored, I would put like strigs of rosemary in a nice olive oil. But then I would also put in garlic and I was told that you can't just put garlic in oil and leave it there. Yeah. But why is that? Well, the, the microbe, uh, Clostridium botulinum, it, it prefers, or it doesn't prefer, it requires a, an anaerobic, uh, a zero oxygen, um, low acidity, sort of middle pH 7-ish uh, environment. And when you when you talk about what's an ideal environment for uh, for for growing botulinum, olive oil is uh, olive oil olive oil is a big one. You know, if you look at the, uh, I think it's the FDA reports annually in terms of uh, food poisoning. 
you know, there was a huge, there was a huge rash of, of garlic infused olive oil, uh, botulism cases back in the 90s um it's, that's, it's, a, that's what i was trying to make it too <laughs> it's uh you know it's I'm, associated with with sausage also because if you don't have and salt you know salt salt alone won't prevent the growth of of botulinum uh, nitrates will help to will help to keep it at bay and if you have some acidity developing in your in your sausage, you can you know, that will you know, that will keep it safe while it dries. But if you don't have enough nitrate or enough acidity, then you know, a, a homemade sausage, a homemade dried sausage, is you know it, it's it can be a time bomb. I've thrown away sausages that I tasted, and I was like. This doesn't have enough salt in it. Like this, this could legitimately be poisonous. And wow. you know, well, you, 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 you also you mentioned the, 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 the history and science of, of these traditional foods. So how did, you know, before we had microscopes and, you know, Louis Pasteur pasteurization and other science, how, how did people for thousands of years know how to make sausage and, oil cured fishes and all these other things uh tradition i suppose you know and that that's sort of that that's sort of looking at you know why why do we do it this way because that's the way we did it that's the way dad did it and grandpa did it and grandma did it and going back all these generations that's you know we do it this way because that's the way we've done it before, and it it didn't kill us. Um, uh, I always think about how how did these things evolve? How many different types of uh, iterations did you go through before you realized, okay, so this is safe, but this is not safe? How many people, you know, how many people took a wrong turn? down uh down that path of well is this going to be poisonous or is it not going to be poisonous not that they understood what was happening microbially but you know taking a gamble so maybe that's you know, why the, the emperors had tasters <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised if that's a if that's a factor wow hey let's just cut so back to you gabe so you start as a home brewer um, you were working in a brewery. How did you become a distiller? Because you're a top distiller. And um, what, what, yeah, what, what's a, a moment when you kind of went from brewing to distilling? Well, I was, uh, I was the head brewer at Santa Fe Brewing Company for five some years. And, you know, we were closely tied in with the local distillery, Santa Fe Spirits. Uh, no no official relationship, no, no, you know, two separate businesses, similar name, separate businesses. But the original distiller there came from Santa Fe Brewing Company. His wife was, and even now still is the general manager there. And so when I started, we were, we were running, we were making wash for them, for their whiskey. Uh, we would, we would mail a batch of grain to their, uh, to their specs and mash it and run off the the wort, and then instead of uh, you know instead of boiling it and adding hops and turning it into beer, we would pump it off into totes that they would truck back to the distillery. And at a you know at a certain point it was it was time to move on and and do something else. And I looked around and thought, well, I like whiskey, I like gin, you know. Maybe I'll go do go do that, and uh, I happened to know the people over there. They were looking for some help, so it was just an easy, natural transition. And I've you know I've moved back and forth a couple times. After Santa Fe Spirits, I I managed uh, the brew house at Twisted Pine and in, in Boulder, Twisted Pine Brewing. Uh, after that, I came up here to. 
to the family Jones where I manage our, our production distillery. You know, I, I, uh, I love doing both. Um, well, it's great, man. Yeah. Next time we'll have you on, we can do a dinner <laughs> with your, <laughs> your whisk, your, your spirits and, uh, some of your fermented foods. Um, Sounds it's really lovely. great, man. The fermentation kitchen from the Brewers Association by Gabe Toth. Brandon, last thing. So for you, you know, you're, you're a cider, you're, you're all things curious. Let's say that. And we do love you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what about your other fruits? So you, you, you ferment fruits. How is it yep. different? Cause we're talking about microbes. How is making wine or cider different? Cause like it's kind of a natural process in some ways you might just yep. leave it, but you're, you're looking for something different than, than what Gabe's talking about with food. Uh, well, I don't know about that. Uh, I mean, I, right now for my, you know, for my wine efforts, I mean, I don't know how much I'll put up this year, hundred gallons or something. Um, and that's a mix of, you know, it's a mix of pears and apples and then with each year, as I sort of uncover other um, resources, um, trees, uh, I'm adding the exotic fruits. And that, that's probably where I find the most excitement, mainly because it's, you know, the Europeans would say it's not uncharted territory, but in the U.S. it's relatively uncharted territory. Like, so like what, like quince? Yeah, single varietal quinces. Yeah, I've been working with those quite a bit. Um, I mean... I'm sure there's somebody out there that will correct me if I'm wrong, but I I don't know that there's more than four or five producers in the country that are doing a hundred percent quince. There's lots of quince ciders, quince wines. And I make a distinction, American cider association. I don't think would, but the distinction, if there are apples in it, then it's quince cider. But if there are no apples, it's really a quince wine. And, um, and so I've been working with single varietals and trying to, you know, kind of establish a, yeah, you know, I'm starting to build on my own uh, rating scale for different quince varieties and astringency scales and stuff like that, and the varieties that I want to work with, which again are all very limited quantities. So it's not like I'm putting up a you know hundred gallons of each. Um, and uh, going through that process, if you're not familiar with quince, you know, I mean, what I like about it is that you know you go to when I went to some Michelin restaurants, I, I take my quince wine to pretty high end places and get their feedback. Um, and people are, you know, small A's are just not familiar with it. They just don't see it. Um, you know, the, the executive chefs and things like that are all familiar with it, but it's always in a cooked capacity. And so I just really enjoy that conversation. And, um, for me, when I came to the fruit and, you know, kind of just f fell in love with the aromatics, um, and then I taste a lot of the wines that are out there. I, I just, for me personally, there was something more I wanted that it didn't feel like the fruit was being fully expressed. And so I've been on my own path and kind of creating a, a, a little bit of a different way of trying to get that essence of the quince into the bottle. And that's extended to some other, other rare fruits. Again, you know, there's small quantities, but um, there's not a lot of research. There's a couple people around the world that are, you know, working with medlars, for example. I mean, I did a hundred percent medlar wine last year and I, to yet, yet I have not found, I mean, you, you can get them in the Northeast for sure. Um, but, um, you know, finding them is difficult. So I really, I enjoy it because it's, um, off the beaten track. Um, almost certainly I can go to, you know, very, um, kind of, you know, famous cider makers, people that are deep into the industry and they just have never seen it before. And so it's a, it's a fun conversation, right? It's an education. No, um, I'm telling so, you, man, you're, you're great. Hey, um, we're going to cut this off, but thank you so much. And I, I, I did want to talk about food for Thanksgiving week. And I'm glad we talked about the Fermentation Kitchen by Gabe Toth. So big thanks to everyone. Thanks to our engineer, Armin Spengen. Uh, thanks to Gabe and Brandon for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Woo! Thanksgiving. Thanks so much, guys. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.